Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning just acknowledging your good and greatness, how gracious you are. Um, Lord, you are so holy, um, and we praise you for that. Um, We just thank you. For everything that you've given us, you have blessed us beyond measure, Father. Um, I just thank you for this time that we can come together and worship you. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just be with Pastor Mark this morning, um, that you would bless his study this week, um, and that it would be your words through him and not his, Lord, and that we, um, as your people, would accept them with open uh, minds and open hearts, um, that we would just learn more about you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Good to be together today, as always, to worship God together, to hear His Word spoken, preached about, believed, understood. Um, And that's our hope today, that we would fall in love with Christ, that we would fall in love with His Word. We walk away from here, um, grown in Him, understanding Him more and better, Um, that uh, this, this time together is... Well, this, this book, this whole book, but specifically 1 Corinthians, is written to believers. And the Sunday morning worship service, we, we preach the gospel, we speak the truth. We want people to come to Christ through this, but the main focus of our time this morning, every Sunday morning, is the worship of God by His people, the church. To help us to refocus after a crazy week or a crazy weekend to know what's coming up or even the unexpected that's going to happen at work or at school or just in life in general and to be able to go, I am God's, this is who he is and this is who I am in, in him and to have the courage and the strength to live for him throughout the week. So that's, that's why we're here this morning is to worship him so that we can then go out and live lives that are worthy of the salvation that he has given us. So these words by Paul um, to summarize the first nine verses that we spent two weeks on. Uh, the first nine verses, Paul is really asking that question. Is that if that's why we're here as a church is to worship him, then we have to understand who is the church. Or to be more specific, Paul asks a question is, who does God say is the church? And according to the first verses of his letter here, The church is made up of those who have been called by God to be set apart from an unbelieving world. 
God has created the church. God has made us his own through the blood of Christ shed upon the cross. To the church here at Elm Creek, we are but a small part of God's church that is found throughout the whole world because the church is made up of those who call upon the name of the Lord of Jesus Christ, whether that's in Spanish or Italian or whatever, whatever language, English, We as the church proclaim Christ as our Savior, treasure, and Lord. He saved us from the wrath of God. He is the most important and most valuable thing to us as as a people. And he is our Lord in that he is our master. He is the one that we take the orders from. He's the one that we listen to. And when he says, do this or don't do that in his word, we desire to follow him and to please him as our Lord and master. And every member of the church is given gifts from the Holy Spirit to encourage and equip the local body of believers. Remember last week I said, if this is your home church, it is not an accident that you're here. It is not an accident at the the way that God has made you as far as your, your, uh, your gifting as a believer. What has he gifted you in? He wants you to use that. He is asking you to use that. And we are asking as a church for you to use your gift, whether that's teaching or whether that's administrative. Maybe it's cleaning the bathrooms and you do that really well and you love doing it. I don't know why, but you do. Awesome. Guess what? We have bathrooms that need to be cleaned. Your gifting, whatever it may be, from the Holy Spirit was given to you so that we might be edified And as a church, we might be equipped to do the work of God to make us spiritually healthy. But God also gives those spiritual gifts to us, Paul says, in order to sustain our faithfulness to God until he takes us home where Christ returns. And we know that this is true. We know that he will sustain us because God is a faithful and trustworthy God. He is going to accomplish. He will accomplish what he began in us when he saved us, when he made us his own. When he, as he makes us holy more and more in the image of him and his character and his desires and his love until the day that he brings us into his presence and makes us perfect. See, doubts and fears of this life they do not define us as God's people because we cannot sustain our faith. That's why we have doubts. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I could be faithful to God. In and of ourselves, we can't. But we don't have to doubt because we don't have to. We're not the ones who sustain ourselves. God sustained us. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have a part in it doesn't mean that we, we don't need to be faithful to God as his people. What it means is that we are not removed from the family of God if we mess up or if we have doubts. Those sins, those, those doubts do not define us as God's people because I know even though I may, I may sin or I will sin and even though I will have doubts, in the background, the foundation of my faith is not found in my doubts and in me. It is found in Jesus Christ who is perfect. And God says, you know what, Mark? I'm going to sustain you until the day that I come again. 
And you know what that tells me? Is that despite my doubts and my, my sins, God's going to work in me and he's going to continue to make me more and more holy until I'm in his presence. We are God's. We are his. Because he has bought us at a great price. And because of that, he will preserve our faith to the end. Will does God, did God send his son to die for us on the cross to change us, to make us more holy, only for us to be able to be taken from him? Does that not cheapen the death of Christ? Does that mean that Christ's death was not enough to sustain me for all eternity? No, it was. That is who we are as the church. Man, that was pretty passionate. That was, that was good stuff. I could probably end here, but I won't. Because Paul does it, he goes right into the next thing. When the opening letters of, of, of this letter, he defines the church. He's reminding them, as we need to be reminded, this is who we are as God's people. This is who we belong to. And he has to remind that them of that because in the coming chapters, he's going to say some really difficult things. He's going to be very straightforward. He's not going to sugarcoat or beat around the bush in order to preserve their feelings or their emotions. He's going to say, no, this is wrong and this is right. Your thinking is wrong. Your thinking is right. And so he, he's saying, this is who you are as God's people. So you have to remember who you are because the, the church in Corinth, and we've, we are very much in the same danger as, as follow, uh, uh, following their example, they forgot. They forgot who their first love was. They've lost their focus. Paul has heard that there was quarreling amongst themselves, div dividing the body of Christ. And at the center of this division of the church is preference, not truth. See, Paul appeals to them. He's urging them and pleading with them, be united, not divided. Be united. Be one, not two, not 12. Now, if you've spent any significant amount of time in, in the church, you're going to know that divisions are way too common. It's like a tradition, right? oh, we're a church, then I guess we must be divided. And the thing, churches have divided over things like the color of carpet. I know that's a big joke. It has happened. Churches have divided over elevators or lack thereof. Churches have divided over the personality of the leadership. They've also divided with the, uh, because of sin within the ranks of the church. And that's just touching the tip of the iceberg. There's so many more. But are there ever issues in which divisions are good in the church. Because Paul says very clearly here, right? He says, don't be divided. There should be no divisions among you. Okay, well, that's an absolute statement, right? So then we should always be unified no matter what. Well, that would be taking the passage too far because what we have to do is take the whole of God's word, all of his counsel, not just one little part because there are other parts where it seems like Paul contradicts himself. So he says here in verse 10, let there be no divisions among you, 
And yet only 10 chapters later, he writes these words. He says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now there is a, people might say, well, I think, I think Paul's being sarcastic here. Well, that's a possibility. He, he's known for that a little bit, but I don't think so. I think he's saying there's divisions, and they had to so that we would know who's genuinely believers, who are genuine believers, and those who are not genuinely believers. And so is Paul condemning or condoning divisions within the church? Is he confused? Well, the answer is no, he's not confused. And yes, he's both condemning and condoning. Because the real question has to be, what should the church be divided over? In First John, John chapter 2, verse 19, the apostle John writes of a group of people who had left the church because they denied the Father and the Son, rejecting God as the giver of eternal life. This is what he says in verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19 of 1 John. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, why? That it might become plain that they are not of us. In other words, a group left the church, and if they had really been a part of the church, truly believers, they would have stayed in the church. But instead, they left the church. And that was a good thing because it, it realized or it, it revealed that they never were the church to begin with. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. They were not Christians, according to the word of God. And so to put it more generally, divisions are good for the church when the truths of God as found and understood in his word are rejected and denied. If there is a group within the church that rejects the truths of God as in his word, then yes, divisions are, are a good thing. That is good for the church. Now, one could also make the argument that divisions are good when personalities or priorities are in conflict, as was the case between Barnabas and Paul, who went their separate ways, but both were committed to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. They, they disagreed about a man named Mark, who had left them. Barnabas wanted to give Mark a second chance. Paul said, forget that. I could give him a second chance. He does later on. They, they do reconcile later on in life. But in that moment, Paul's like, no, if he's going to leave because things get hard, I don't want that guy around me. It's, he's gonna, he's gonna, Barnabas is like, come on, give him a second chance. No, I'm not going to. All right, well, then we're going to part ways. Barnabas went with, with Mark. Paul went with others. And guess what? They both preached the gospel and expanded the kingdom. So divisions can be a good thing. But like with Barnabas and Paul, that's the exception, not the rule. It's the exception, not the rule. Now, Paul will eventually get to the problematic division within the church in Corinth, but he first needs to remind them as to what does unite them. He writes, I appeal to you, brothers, that there be no divisions among you. And then he uses connecting words, what I call connecting words, but that, so May, I, I appeal that there are no divisions among you, but instead that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Don't be divided. 
but be united in what? The same mind, the same judgment, or literally this means to be united in the same mindset and the same purpose. And so a new question has to be asked, and what is that mindset and purpose? Does Paul lay that out? And wonderfully, he does. What is that mindset and purpose? It's in verse 17. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He's not belittling baptism. He's not saying we don't have to do baptism in this church or in the church in general, that the baptism doesn't really matter. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the focus of the church, we're not united under baptism. We're united under the preaching of the gospel. The church's mindset and purpose, as it was with Paul, is to preach the gospel message that salvation is given to those who believe that Jesus took their place upon the cross, willingly giving him his own life as a substitute, taking the wrath of God for our sins upon himself. That's the gospel in general. And those who confess their sinful rebellion against God, those who believe in their heart that Jesus is the risen Savior, God says, you will be saved. That's That's the gospel message. That's what unites the church. And to proclaim that message to an unbelieving world. And so, if that's what's to unite the church, then what has divided the church at Corinth? Well, instead of the gospel, they've been focused on the messenger and not the message. Verse 12 always confused me growing up. I don't know if you've ever read through this because Paul says, He's talking, he's talking as the Corinthians, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, I always thought growing up, this is where my mindset was, perhaps one could say that Paul shouldn't be followed because he's a human, but, but Christ? Aren't you supposed to follow Christ? And yet it seems like the answer to what he's trying to say is no, not in that way, not the way that Paul is expressing it. And so what is he trying to say? Well, if we look at Paul's list of teachers, none of them are false teachers. They're not leading people away from the gospel. Paul wrote a number of the New Testament books, including 1 Corinthians. Apollos was an effective teacher in Ephesus in Corinth, planted many churches. Cephas is Simon Peter's Aramaic name. You know that Peter, who was the, one of the original 12 disciples, denied Christ and was reinstated by Christ. That same Peter. He's a solid guy. And then, of course, there's Christ, who's the perfect son of God. So all of these are what we would call today solid, biblically sound teachers. And that's Paul's point. The focus of the Corinthian church was on the messenger, not the message. The message of all of these teachers, Christ included, centered around the gospel message. But the Corinthians were focused more on the eloquent presentation of the message. Peter's fine, but I like the way Paul teaches. Well, I mean, I'm going to follow Apollos because he's the only one who, he's the one who baptized me, so I'm going to follow him. Well, you know, I prefer the red letters in the Bible than all the black letters, so I only follow the red letters. That's what's being said sometimes today. 
you get that the red letter Bible and those are the words of Christ, what they're forgetting is that technically the black letters are also Christ's words because he wrote the Bible through the Holy Spirit, through men who wrote it down. But we get focused, or the church was getting focused on the message, the messenger, not the message. And so the Corinthians began to quarrel amongst themselves. Well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. He's much more clear. And Peter, he's really succinct. Paul's just too hard to understand. Well, I follow Christ. He's my Savior, and I don't listen to anybody else. Rivalries, contentions began to sprout within the church. Strife and divisions were weakening the witness of the church to speak and to live out the gospel message. In other words, preferences were beginning to dictate the unity of the church. Preferences were beginning to dictate the unity of the church. See, Paul's words are not simply an appeal to unity. They are also a desperately needed correction of the heart and mind. I mentioned, I think it was last week, that two weeks ago I went and I spoke to the Russian church. And afterwards, talking to the pastor, um, I said one of, one of the things they struggle with is, well, do, does the preacher pr- preach for half an hour or an hour? Do we do it all in Russian? Do we do half and half? Do we do it all in English? Those are all preferences. None of those are sin issues. I just, some, not me, some people want to hear the preacher preach for an hour. Obviously, you guys don't want to, Right? I mean, this, I don't want to. I get that. That's understandable. But some people do. That's a preference. It's not, you know what? Mark is preaching false doctrine. That's a problem. I don't care if he does it for an hour or two minutes. If it's false, it's false. I don't want to listen. No, it's, you know, sitting for an hour is too long. You know, it's, I need to get up a stretch. Uh, it's just a, that's a preference. That is not, that's about the heart. That's about the mind. It's not about doctrine. It's not about truth. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now the cross, or the church had forgotten that the power of the cross is not found in powerful, moving clever, emotionally driven words meant to produce some sort of response. That's not saying we shouldn't, we shouldn't speak it clearly and well. It doesn't mean that emotions are not a part of it. But the, the church had forgotten the power of the cross and put the power instead on the eloquent speaking of Paul or Apollos or Christ. The power of the cross is found where? In the preaching of the gospel message. You see, the root of the word translated here is preach. I'm going to go Greek on you because my hope, I want you to, do you hear another, an English word where we get an English word from this? The word preach is translated from the Greek word euangelizo. What does that sound like? evangelism to preach the good news to evangelize means to proclaim the good news to proclaim the gospel message and so if you do not have the gospel message 
you are not preaching the good news. You are not evangelizing. To forget to proclaim the gospel message, which the church in Corinth had done. They forgot to proclaim the gospel message and they began to focus on the messenger. To do that is to strip the power from the cross. It strips the cross of the power to be able to save souls. Now, that is not saying that the cross could ever really truly be removed or the power of the cross could ever truly be removed. That, that's, not what, that's not what that means. The cross is the cross. It has not changed. It is so powerful, it can change lives and it changes the eternal destinations of souls. But to focus on the messenger then puts the incentive on the messenger to save, which is a really serious problem and is really uncomfortable for anybody who's speaking. <laughs> If you're, how many times do I say, if you're counting on me to save you, heaven help you. If you're counting on me to, to meet all of your preferences, heaven help you. If our focus as a church is on the messenger, whether it's Albert or whoever's teaching Sunday school or Luke and Katie with the kids or the Wonderland teachers and say, well, just, you know, it's, I wish they would do this better or this differently. Well, what's the message? Like, Well, it's, it's the gospel. Praise God. Guess what? He uses weak people like us to proclaim the truth of God's message. But it ain't us who saves people. I am not the Savior of the world, and I am not the Savior of your soul. Neither are you the Savior of mine. There's only one Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. To focus on the messenger and not the message is a position that is doomed to fail. Because it's only through Christ's work upon the cross that any of us are saved. Even Paul, who is arguably one of the most gifted writers of Scripture, says only a few verses later in verse 21, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now there's a, there's a lot in there. It's wisdom of the world and the folly of God and all that stuff that we're going to get into in the next couple of weeks. But Paul is not saying that he can't speak or teach clearly or well. Instead, that it is through the message that he proclaims, the gospel message that God saves those who believe. Now, I think Paul is super eloquent. It, I mean, he, he seems to have that in, in all of his letters. Very logical, lays everything out. But Paul's words don't save. Christ saves through Paul's words through the truth of the gospel message. Now, a couple weeks ago, um, I was corrected after the service that I had asked what the purpose of Elm Creek was and that I actually said it incorrectly after I had given Albert a really hard time from up front. So I need to admit I, I got it wrong. What is our purpose as a church? If you could say it to me, to know Christ and to make him known. And we do that through what? Through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, love, and discipleship. Our purpose as a church is to know our Savior and to make him known to fellow believers, to make him known to unbelievers. And what we mean by that is that we're going to have worship 
not just Sunday morning songs, but every day of our lives as we strive to live for Him and have lives of worship to God, that it's not just Mark-centered, it's not us-centered, it's gospel-centered, it's Christ-centered. It's, it's the way that God saves people-centered worship. And evangelism, gospel-centered evangelism, and gospel-centered love. How do we love God and how do we love others? Well, the gospel teaches and shows us how to do that. How do we disciple one another? It's centered around the gospel message, the truth of God's word. Can we be united in this as God's people? Can we be of one mind and one purpose, focused on the proclamation of the gospel message? Yes, we all have preferences. We all have desires. We all have ways that we can hear better or we prefer stories rather than theology and vice versa. And yes, there may be times that we must part ways to proclaim the gospel message due to personality or priority differences. But the church is not limited to Elm Creek, amen? The world's salvation is not dependent upon Elm Creek Community Church. And that doesn't mean we could sit here in a corner and become monks and nuns and not do anything. What it means is that God's kingdom work can be done here and outside these walls and outside of America into other countries. Now, is he calling us to do that personally? Maybe. Maybe he's asking us to provide financially for those that he has called. Maybe it's to pray for those who has called. But guaranteed, we are on a mission field here in America. We are on a mission field here in Maple Grove or Brooklyn Park or Brooklyn Center or Rogers or wherever you're from. God has called us to be missionaries, to speak and to live out the gospel message to his people because the kingdom of God is not limited to this place and the church of God is not limited to us. And so we can have, if you move and you go to Washington State and you join a gospel-believing, Bible-preaching, Jesus-loving, gospel-proclaiming church, guess what? You're a part of the church. And you are called to reach those that are around you there. But what we should be divided over is not the messenger, but the message. It unites us, and when the message is different, it should divide us. But should divisions arise because we follow one solid biblical teacher over another, we forget the gospel message. And in the process, we too empty the cross of its power. Because it's in the power of the cross which has saved God's people, not the power of Elm Creek. Not the power of Mark and not the power of you. The cross has the power to save people from the wrath of God for their sins. If you're a believer, that's what he did for us. And he showed us his grace. There's no work that we did. It's not like we showed up and God goes, oh good, you checked that box, great. Now you're saved. Like, no, there's nothing 
No work we can do, nothing we can boast of in our salvation. Because it is all by the power of Christ through the power of the cross to save us. And so we want to give him praise. The focus of our Sunday mornings, the focus of our life is ultimately and primarily the glory and the worship and the praise of God. So that we might, through our lives and through our words, proclaim the gospel message to an unbelieving world so that some may believe. And so, we have communion this morning. Didn't plan it this way. In fact, if you ask Becky, she came in on Tuesday and I looked at the calendar and I went, oh, we got communion this Sunday. Oh, guess what we're talking about? The power of the cross. Oh, it's amazing how God works that out, huh? During communion, if you are of the church, whether you're a member of Elm Creek or not, you're welcome to join us. But this is, this is, this is the challenge that we have. And I think it's a challenge every time we take communion together, whether it's here or someplace else as God's people. It's a time for us to praise our Lord Jesus Christ for his willingness to sacrifice himself upon the cross for our sins. Give him the glory and the praise. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me because without you, I would be lost. I would not know who you are. And after that, pray as God's people that we would never forget the gospel message. Pray that God would remind us that we are saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Pray that we are brought with a price and be reminded that Christ has defeated the power of sin over us. So we have nothing to fear. My sin and my doubts do not control me and they do not define me. Praise be to his grace. And pray that God would open our eyes to the opportunities that he is making for us as a church as a whole, but individually as a believer to proclaim, to evangelize the world around us, to proclaim the gospel message to our family and our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and yes, even fellow students. If you're a believer and you're in school, whether you're college or you're younger, even if you're five years old and you're a believer and you love Jesus and you, you are saved by his grace, praise God. You are called to preach the gospel. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. But to proclaim his saving gospel message to your fellow students. May we as a church be united in the gospel. May we have may we have conversations and debates and even should should divisions arise that we would recognize and ask that yeah, this not be about preference. And if God is God well God has called us to this place and so we should be united under his word and his truth for his glory and not our own. In other words, this is not about us. This table is not about us. This is about us proclaiming the gospel message 
proclaiming Christ as our Savior, a public profession of faith, saying, I love Christ, thank you, Jesus, and giving Him the glory that He deserves. So, when you are ready, come to the table, grab a cup, grab a a piece of bread or a cracker, and come and sit down. And together as a family of God, as the church of God, we will take communion and glorify Him, give thanks to Him for being our Savior and saving us through the power of the cross. So come when you are ready.